if a frog of some sort. Yeah, Reading Spanish orphans and retro. Orthodox right? uh, patriarch and the Pope fishing. Uh, and then we've got we've got a Popish figure in a nice Christmas sweater catechizing a frog. Beautiful. That, that's you know that's how we roll on Saturdays. What, what's up, guys? This is uh, Timothy Gordon, Rules for Retrogrades, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades out there. We have a special Saturday show for you today with Martyr Maid and with uh, Joe Boca. A lot of you guys have made requests that I do a crossover with Martyr Maid, and he's done some great pre-Easter and Easter content we thought we would talk to Daryl today. Daryl, thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. I'm very, very pleased to do so. Joe, how the heck are you, my brother? Doing very well, Tim. Thanks for having me, as always. <laughs> yeah, no, always. So let's get into this. Daryl, this is our first time meeting. Uh, a lot of times when a guest comes on the show, we're doing formal introductions or semi-formal, and we, we, we were hanging out two weeks before or something. But you're from my old stomping ground in, in San Diego there, and we've never met. Just now is the first time we have. You put out a lot of good quality content. And what I noticed in preparation for Easter, including Easter, since we're still part of the octave, you had a show that was really, really good, healthy for America, a post-Republic that is post-Christian in decline. And here's, here's what I take away from what you were saying on your Easter uh, programming uh, with, with no you know, hat tip to Rene Girard. We have a culture in America that is, in a secular humanist way, obsessed with victimhood mongering, victimhood mining. This comes from Christianity in a perverted, inverted, subverted way. Do you want to tell me and Joe and my audience out there, the parish orphans and retrogrades, what you were talking about on your Easter show? Because it was good stuff. Yeah, well, you make a good point there. And it's the point that Nietzsche obviously made over and over about Christianity, right? It's the idea that the concern for the victim engendered by Christianity uh, is what would eventually cause Western civilization to start looking back on its own history and recognizing that it had victimized a lot of people as every civilization had when it was building itself and that it would, that, that would essentially delegitimize it, you know, and they would saw off the branch that they were sitting on. And uh, the Easter episode was, like you said, it was obviously influenced by Rene Girard as um, you know, as, as more and more of my, perspectives on things are as time goes on. I don't know if that's more a result of the way things have been changing in society, or if it's just something that, you know, that, that, that I'm uh, coming into as I get older. I read, you know, I read Gerard back in like my early twenties, but uh, you know, I started rereading him again in the last few years and it's really made a big impact on me and kind of brought me back around to my Christianity in a powerful way. Um, you know, the, Things I found really interesting about, well, I mean, there's a million things, obviously, to find interesting about the Passion and Easter story. But uh, the, the one that's been sticking with me lately and was the focus of that episode was the way that, well, actually, let's back up a little bit. You know, I think it's interesting. Like, if you look at the social and political milieu that the Gospels take place in, you know, you have the Jews who... Uh, obviously have been through a lot. They've been exiled. They've been conquered by the Babylonians and so forth. The Persians bring them back to their homeland. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, and then Alexander the Great comes in and takes over and the Greeks conquer them. And 
Some time after that, they regain their independence under the Maccabean revolt. They get that. They're real pleased with that. And then, of course, the Romans come in and they take over. And so, you know, th- this is when the Gospels take place. And it's a very, very like revolutionary, t- for lack of a better word, it's what we would call it today, like a lot of revolutionary ferment in the air in Jerusalem and, and uh, you know, Jewish society in general. And, you know, they were kind of facing a decision in a way, right? Like the, the obvious one, the mimetic sort of uh, the, the one of mimetic rivalry is the one that we're kind of like, we see a lot of today. Everybody want, you know, you want to fight, you feel there's some kind of injustice or that you are being unjustly oppressed and you want to, you want to go find the oppressors and oppress the hell out of them. Right. And, and, and reverse the situation. And you get this guy, uh, Jesus coming along from a pretty heavily Hellenized area of, of uh, Palestine, obviously up in Galilee, um, you know, he was a he was a tradesman, a carpenter up in a heavily Hellenized area. So maybe probably even spoke Greek. You know, you could you could speculate like who knows. Um, and he comes down and he starts saying essentially saying like, you know, you guys are heading down a very dark path. Um, the way that you're taking this thing is going to lead to disaster for everybody, all of us. And, uh, you know, render unto Caesar, what is Caesar, uh, render unto God, what is God, so on and so forth, kind of trying to moderate things a, a little bit in a way. Um, and what you see is that, uh, you know, it's the same thing you see today, like that that is not popular when you're in a where when you're when you're in a state in your society where you're you're approaching that mimetic sort of sacrificial crisis point. Right. Um, the, the mob will turn on nobody as quickly or as viciously as the person who is saying maybe everybody should calm down a little bit. And, you know, the, so the interesting thing that I, uh, th- that I was paying attention to in that episode is how, and I know there's some differing opinions on this uh, that people have had over the years, but um, I don't know, maybe it's left vague for a reason, is that when Jesus came into Jerusalem a week before Easter, uh, he was obviously welcomed by the crowd with waving palm fronds and so forth. And then a week later, at least the way I interpret it, uh, you know, those same people who were welcoming him with palm fronds were in the crowd banging for his blood at the urging of, you know, Caiaphas and the, and the Pharisee leaders and so forth. And how does that happen? And, we, you know, it kind of tells us how it happens with the uh, story of Peter denying Christ three times. You have Peter, the rock, you know, the strongest of the disciples, which I think is why the, the, the story featured him. Because if Peter could give in to the power of the mob, this guy who was, was willing to draw his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus the night, you know, the, 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 when he was being arrested the night before, ready to die um, at the hands of all the, palace, uh, the temple guards who were there. Yet he couldn't stand up to his own peers and, um, you know, just basic mob peer pressure. And, you know, I think that that's how it happens. And I think that one of the one of the core messages of the Gospels is uh, is just to, for I guess, for lack of a, of a more sophisticated way of putting it, just don't ever be a part of a mob, no matter what. Never be a part of a mob. Don't allow yourself to get sucked in. And um, and if you see it happening. Uh, then, you know, to the extent that you're able, you should stand up against it. Yeah, I've long, I've long uh, said the same thing. You know, Mark, lots of atheists have remarked the same. Mark Twain commented this all throughout the 19th century. Never let yourself be caught up in a, a mob and cooler heads will prevail. But uh, Joe, Joe, maybe you want to weigh in on this. The funny thing about our Lord 
is that in the one in the one sense, you know, when he's talking to the zealots and Essenes, his message is one of moderation and temperance. But when he's talking to the Pharisees or or the Essenes and and the zealots, for that matter, he's also saying something, and he also got killed for something far more radical, which is saying that he is God incarnate, right? So at the one time, our Lord is the you know one hand washes the other, one hand takes away, one hand gives when it comes to extremity. Um, what do you, what do you guys make of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's an obvious dichotomy in that sense where you, at, at one particular time, our Lord is being measured. And then at another particular time, you know, there's obviously the scene in the, uh, the temple with the money changers. Uh, it's for, while you're going through that uh, about Peter, I was thinking about um, if I, if, my memory serves me correctly when I was reading the Gospels. When Peter struck uh, our Lord's captor, he said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan," which uh, which is which is, no, is, I, that, is, is that sorry. wrong? Or yeah, I think uh, you guys can maybe correct me. I'm pretty sure that that happened when um, you know Jesus said that he was telling his disciples that uh, you know I'm going to have to be like taken from you. I'm going to have to be like, my enemies are, are, are going to get me at some point or something like that. And Peter said, no, 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 that's never going to happen. And he said, yeah, that might be, that might be more precise. Satan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That might be more precise. And then Christ, and then Christ heals him. So we have a, uh, one of the, I listened to your, uh, your, your Jonestown um, series and. Uh, well, and real quick though, uh, just, go ahead. Yeah. But you were, I Please. mean, you really, because when Peter, drew his sword uh he was basically enacting what he had said to jesus that got right. jesus to say that so really like the two were very connected for sure so it's yeah there's almost uh like like a because peter is like understood as like yeah kind of like there's almost bluster and bravado about peter in that in that scene and the 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 writing was on the wall for the denial basically because you know he would you know there was there was Peter's posturing, and then as soon as as soon as it got things got hard, you know, to put it put it lightly, uh, he's one of the he he's guilty of the denial. And yet, the most mild of the apostles, John, was the one who kind of endures till the end to the foot of the cross. Uh, but yeah, to speaking to that dichotomy of like Christ as being meek and mild, and then Christ as this uh, Christ as like firebrand type of figure uh the t you know I i've lately had you know i was glad you brought up like as soon as you started uh chatting uh talking about nietzsche and i was thinking about I i've been i read through some nietzsche while i was in college which is a couple years ago now and i'm just kind of starting now to get back into him a bit more as there seems to be uh a kind of subset of the right that are almost identifying as kind of Nietzschean. And it's, and it's, it's interesting. And obviously a lot of what Nietzsche said isn't completely wrong. I mean, he's about as prophetic as a philosopher could be. I mean, when he's, you know, the, the scene, uh, when he's, you know, the, the God is dead scene is, uh, is, is genius. But uh, I was wondering how, well, or ruminating on how like a Christian replies to Nietzsche when Nietzsche says that, okay, like when, when I was listening to your Easter episode, you're, you're going through how the Hebrew, you know, the Hebrew Bible and then which culminates in the gospels is the only, the only 
myth, even it's it's even though it's true. Uh, the only thing that the only story told from the perspective of the uh, those who had stones thrown at them. Nietzsche, I suppose, would be like, well, this is this is indicative, like the rise of Socrates and the rise of Christ is indicative of, of a decline. Uh, what what is like what would, in your opinion, be the proper response to Nietzsche? And, and is it Dostoevsky? I guess I don't know. <laughs> well, that's a so there's I guess there's two ways to answer that. I'll I'll pick one of them. Um, you know, Nietzsche. I think that his that his prescription. Uh, were, I think they were mostly wrong. Um, that doesn't make his project ignoble on its face because, um, you know, he, he persevered to the end, uh, holding on to his ideas and, and sort of trying to embody them in, in his own way. And, uh, he paid the ultimate price for it by the end. You know, um, he, you could say that maybe Nietzsche's glory was in the fact that, you know, not in the fact that he was right about everything, but that he paid his bill down to the last cent for being wrong. And, um, you know, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky were really, they were looking at, they were looking at a very similar problem. The, the advent of modernity, the regimentation of life, the, uh, you know, the, the draining of spiritual content out of life in favor of materialism and, and so forth. And the, the entry of the common people into politics, which kind of draws you down into worldly concerns, just all of these different things that, um, you know, while it was creating a, uh, a more comfortable society for many people, it was uh, making it infinitely more difficult, if not impossible, for people to find meaning in their lives. You know, the, um, what we've kind of found out, I think, to our, uh, to our surprise and detriment over the last, maybe this is a lesson that gets relearned occasionally, but over the last few decades, and especially more recently, as I think we started to have a little, a little intuition, even if it hasn't been like explicated in our minds yet, that freedom itself is really just uh, an empty form awaiting content. Freedom is, uh, you know, is not necessarily something that should be an end in itself, at least on an individual level. Maybe you could say on a political level, you know, it should be, but for, you know, for an individual, it's like you can be liberated from all of your concerns and all of your obligations liberated from all your responsibilities and the consequences of your actions. So you're free to do whatever you want. And that person just, we know that story. We've seen it a million different times in a million different ways and contexts. And that person inevitably uh, circles the drain and becomes absolutely miserable. And, you know, you, you, you know, Nietzsche's solution to that was since we're losing all of these inherited and shared traditions and, 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 and sort of, you know, contexts of meaning that, that used to be given to us, uh, we have to take this radical step of, uh, you know, just becoming the ubermensch of, of creating your own meaning and your own values. And if that means radically rejecting, even to the point of going mad, everything else that's, that's being thrown at you, then that's what you have to do if you're not going to essentially go to hell in the, in the sort of non-Christian sense that he would have meant it. Um, you know, Dostoevsky, um, I like, you know, I, 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 in the episode that I did on the two of them, I talked about how, you know, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky's lives were extremely similar through the first half of their career. They both 
had, uh, you know, sort of overbearing and complicated relationships with the memory of their father. Nietzsche's died very young, but still he was, uh, you know, Nietzsche's father died when he was five years old. He was a preacher. His, both of his grandfathers were preachers. His mother expected, everybody expected him to be a preacher. Nietzsche grew up in a house with his mother, his two aunts and his sister, like that's, and then him. Um, and he grows up where he's sort of the little, and he, he was his father's only son. And everybody sort of looked at him as the, uh, you know, the sort of reincarnation of the father, essentially. And he had to grow up with that. And Dostoevsky, uh, his father died a little bit later when Dostoevsky was it. It was it, like a late teenager, early 20s. But he was a military doctor in the you know czar's army. He was a conservative Orthodox Christian and so forth. Mm -hmm. And Nietzsche, he was a, and he was a very strong man, a stern man. And Nietzsche was kind of a sickly child. And he, he was very sensitive, obviously, went on to become who he was. And so they start out that way. They both become, they both reach, you know, dazzling success at 24 years old. Nietzsche becomes the youngest full professor ever at the uh, University of Basel. Uh, wow. Dostoevsky writes uh, Poor Folk and, um, you know, Belinsky really likes it and kind of that elevates him into the St. Petersburg literary scene. He's a big sensation. And then very quickly, their success kind of falls apart a little more dramatically in Nietzsche in Dostoevsky's case than in Nietzsche's, but their success kind of falls apart after that initial rapid rise. And they kind of go into a period of about 10 years, nine years in Nietzsche's case, 10 in Dostoevsky's where it's just sort of obscure. They don't write anything meaningful. Um, they're not doing anything. Oh, Nietzsche is just at the university of Basel in a, you know, teaching students stuff that is not really appreciated and that he doesn't really care that much about. Nietzsche was actually going to, just before he got that job offer at Basel, he was actually going to switch over and start studying like material sciences because he was kind of over the whole philology thing at that point. But then you get an offer and this is how life works, right? You get up into your late twenties, you have all of these big ideas and things you want to do in your early twenties or whatever. But then life starts impressing itself upon you. You know, you got this job offer and you just can't pass it up. And so you slide into that. Well, now it's been a couple of years and now you actually have like, a, you know, you have, you have a kid now. And so you, it's just, that's how, you know, this is all very basic stuff. But both of them, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, were rebelling against that very strongly. And, you know, the, all of these things that I'm talking about, right? Like the fact that you uh, grew up with a certain father in a certain place, that you, um, you know, went into a, a job that was sort of, um, you know, that your society kind of drove you into to a certain degree based on who you were and the institutions of your society. And now you've got a wife and now you've got a kid and all of these things that that uh, can feel very constricting to like a personality like Nietzsche and to a lot of people who when they're you know in their early 20s in that period of formation in their lives. Well, those are all the things that give your life meaning. You know, it's the things that we don't choose in our lives that really make us who we are. And you know, Nietzsche radically rejected that idea, obviously, he said the things that we don't choose, that has nothing to do with us. And we need to just completely define ourselves by our own will to go out and choose our own path and make ourselves who we are. And Dostoevsky embraced that to a large degree, too. And I think it was had a lot to do with their own uh, with 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 the, the parallel themes in their early lives. And when they come out of that 10-year exile period where they're both very miserable, um, they go into their explosive period, you know, where uh, Nietzsche is writing a, a book a year that people still teach in universities today, Dostoevsky. You know, he didn't, you know, unless you're a, a Dostoevsky freak like me, nobody reads his pre-exile, his pre-prison books for the most part. 
Um, maybe they read the double or something, but usually not even that. All of the things we remember him for came later. And, you know, what, and I think when you look at the patterns of their careers, they were both, uh, you know, like I said, they were both very similar in their reaction to their early lives. When they came out of their exiles, Nietzsche accelerated in that direction and just took it all the way. He said, I'm not going to back down. And Dostoevsky kind of backtracked and he looked around and said, well, like, you know, ignoring the advice of my father and rebelling against everything that my society has laid out there for me and all that, where, look, this is where it's gotten me. And maybe I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, smarter than my father and my community and my traditions and my faith and all of that. Maybe that's not sort of righteousness speaking. Maybe it's pride. And he was able to kind of circle back. You know, when Dostoevsky died, the last thing that he did on his deathbed, when he knew this was going to be the last time that he was going to see his children, he had them brought in. He knew, you know, this is the last time the kids are going to see their father. So it's going to be a impactful experience. It's going to stick with them for a long time. So what does he want to do to make sure that he leaves them with the thing he wants to leave them with? And he has the tale of the prodigal son read to them in his presence, right? Nietzsche really believed that that story kind of uh, brought together all the themes of his work, but also of his, of his personal life. And um, that's a, that's a radically different reaction than Nietzsche had, you know, Nietzsche, the, the, I sort of came up with my own little parable in uh, that episode where, you know, imagine that there are two prodigal sons and they both go off together, you know, screw you, dad, we're going to go have fun. And you, you old fogies don't know what's going on. My big brother's such a, yeah, he's a square or whatever. And they go out and they spend all their money and they're both ending, you know, they both end up in the same place, eating out of a, uh, out of a trough with pigs in a field in a foreign country. And then one of them wakes up and like, you know, the prodigal son in the story and says, you know, this is crazy. Like, what are we, what are we doing here? Like, you know, they're going to celebrate if we go home, everybody misses us. Everybody thinks we're crazy, but they will be happy if we come home. And, um, you know, even my father's servants uh, eat, you know, eat, eat good food. And here I am with the pigs. Let's just go home. Like, what were we thinking? And Nietzsche, the other prodigal son in my version of the story is down with his face in the trough. And he kind of looks up with flies buzzing around him and smelling terrible because he's in this wretched condition. And he looks up at the Dostoevsky prodigal son who wants to go home. And he says, well, then go home to your daddy, coward. I'm not going anywhere. And he says, you know, and so Dostoevsky says to him, like, you know, the two never met each other, but they interact there. Nietzsche especially interacted with Dostoevsky's work very profoundly. He said, you know, don't you see where this is going and, you know, how we're going to, how this ends for, for you if you don't turn around. And Nietzsche, I think, said, yeah, I know exactly how this ends, but I am sure as hell not going back and groveling before my father. And, um, you know, that's a choice that everybody, I think, at some point in their life kind of has to make. Is you going to, you know, because what you have to sacrifice is your pride, right? To be accepted back in the house of your father, the thing that you have to sacrifice is a bit of your pride. And uh, that is not something that we are really taught is much of a virtue these days. Sorry, I got a lot of caffeine in me. I can just go on forever. So. No, that's 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 good <laughs> that's stuff. And the let, purpose, let, yeah. <laughs> let me tell you something, man. When I was an undergrad, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky was, was these two were my closest connection uh, uh, to to the house of my father. And um, there's a beauty. I think Nietzsche Nietzsche said that Dostoevsky was the only psychologist from whom he had anything to learn. And and uh, hearing what you just said, Daryl, 
it's it's uh, which I think is an accurate psychological portrait. I think it's insightful. He he did have a bit more to learn because uh, yeah, prodigal son number two, as you term it, is not the way. This is this is the way to the chasm, and it's unfortunate. I I would say this though, and this is a little bit of a, a different uh, narrative from the perspective of the intellectual tradition of the West. Both Nietzsche and Dostoevsky were intellectual orphans insofar as what they were responding to at university was Hegelianism, or or at the very least, uh, German idealism. And this is just wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, Aristotelianism had been rejected for 300 years, which is basically to say recto ratio, the, the right way of reasoning about the world is Aristotelian hylomorphism. And Dostoevsky was reacting in the Petrashevsky group more to left Hegelianism and the ideas of, you know, that we today would call Marxism. Uh, Nietzsche was reacting just to the whole ball of, of, of German idealist wax. And he's saying, no, this isn't, this isn't good. Now Nietzsche looks at, um, the, the false dichotomy of empiricism and rationalism. And he's like, I don't, I don't want either of these. It's, it's all corpuscularian garbage, right? You've got empiricism. I don't like Locke or Hume. You've got the rationalism. I, I, I care not for Descartes. It's all garbage and it's all wrong. And again, kind of like Joe said earlier, he's right about all that. And then he looks at what his own, uh, uh, the, the, the philosophers from his own, fatherland germany are doing a little bit before his day and he's like this is this is bad too i know even the, even the poet the german poets of the day it's all bad hegel holderlin's you know kant fischer all that stuff is bad 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 he knows he doesn't want any of it and so and of course the uh psychological portrait from his his youth is this good stuff that's really really helpful i i'd never thought of the uh decade-long period before they uh had their explosive period. That's, that's really good insight, but they're think, both um, orphans intellectually, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, um, I was gonna say Spengler, I think, you know, he's a great student of Nietzsche and he sheds a lot of light on, I think how Nietzsche interpreted the, the historical age. Um, and it's something that, you know, it's, I think probably maybe a bit, a bit before that, but um, since Spengler, for sure, like people have looked at uh, like the birth of tragedy, for example, and seen a lot of this in there, his criticism, like you said, of the, move uh, towards Socrates or the transition from, you know, Aeschylus to Euripides, that, that, that move from the spirit to the intellect, say. And, um, you know, Spengler said that civilizations go through these life cycles where the idea, the, the Ur idea, he calls it, that they're sort of, that, that's at the core of them, like the growth of a civilization is essentially the working out of this Ur idea in the world right? It's just manifesting all the different ways. Maybe it's in music or political form or family form, just whatever it is, it's, it's being manifest and said that when it gets to a certain point where all the low hanging fruit has been picked, right? You've painted all the icons. You've um, you know, maybe you've, you've invented classical music. You've done all of that. Not that this is exactly low hanging fruit, obviously there's tremendous genius and effort involved, but now people start to look around and they are starting to run out of obvious new avenues for creativity and, and, and ways of manifesting this, the spirit of their civilization. And one of the, the, the easiest things to do at a time like that is to sort of turn back around, to double back and 
essentially deconstruct all of the things that have come before. And that's like a new way of taking things apart. And it feels creative at the time. But what it does, and, and Spengler says that this begins in the West really with Schopenhauer, that's a little debatable, but it's good enough, is you, you notice a point, you see the same thing in, uh, you know, in the classical world when Socrates comes along, Euripides comes along, as you saw when Schopenhauer comes along, which is all of a sudden everything becomes a problem to be solved, to be analyzed, to be looked at. Whereas you go back to like the Middle Ages and nobody was asking, you know, should I get married? Should I get have kids? Should I desire to, uh, you know, just all of the things that, that go along with, with living a life. These were things that were, uh, these weren't even debates or questions that people asked themselves. And you get to a certain point where the intellect is really beginning to take over. And, you know, and again, like, it's one of the, like, it's one of these things where like I read Schopenhauer, I've read like, you know, I've read, you know, all of the philosophers of the intellect that like came after this period and got a lot out of them in a, in a way. But what it does is it makes you incredibly uh, sort of self-conscious to, to, to a pathological degree, both as individuals and as, as a society, right? You know, Nietzsche or Dostoevsky, you know, when he wrote like the notes from the underground, for example, he wasn't, uh, trying to describe some supervillain, you know, some extreme case of how a human personality in the modern age could go wrong and end up in a, in a corner that it can't back itself out of. He was describing something that he was seeing all around him, you know, the emergence of this sort of hyper-conscious, uh, hyper-rational, um, narcissistic personality complex that, uh, that, that, can't turn its mind off. You can't turn its mind off for five seconds. And as a result, you know, um, again, like it just turns everything into a problem and paralyzes itself. And uh, yeah, no, sorry. Daryl, have you ever read, uh, I, I'd ask Joe, but I know, I know you have, have you ever read uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger become Benedict 16th's Regensburg address? from september of 2006 no I, I think the only thing i've actually read from him was this book of correspondence that he had with an italian like parliamentarian i can't remember oh, marcello pera yeah, yeah 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 i think yeah. that's the only thing i've actually read yeah yeah the, that, that's a good book that's a really good book um but now this is i i urge you my friend to go read the regensburg address remember it was like september the 12th 2006 People think it has to do with Islam because in it, uh, Pope Benedict recounted the story of an emperor, uh, a Byzantine emperor, Man Manuel II Paleologus, doing dialogue with uh, a Muslim scholar. And Benedict quoted Paleologus as saying that Islam has brought nothing but the sword. The Islamic world started going apeshit and uh, lighting things on fire. And so everyone thinks it's about Islam. That's not what it's about. It's about a seven-page address that he gave as a emeritus professor. Now he's emeritus pope, whatever the hell that means. But he, as emeritus pro professor, he gave this to Regensburg, where he'd been a dogmatic uh, theology professor for 25 years. And what it was really about is the history of thought, even though he wasn't a philosopher, he wasn't a historian of philosophy, he opened my eyes and, and we say now red-pilled me. We weren't using that term back in 2006. More in six or seven pages than anyone I've ever read before or since. 
And when we talk about the German idealists, the, the, the life of the mind in the late 1700s, the 1800s, I say they're all intellectual orphans. And I say, this is um, the psychology you, you offered of, uh, you know, the father of Nietzsche, the father of Dostoevsky. It's, it's great, excellent, and really insightful. But they were intellectually, well, they were, they were, <laughs> they were orphans. And here's why. Because in the Regensburg Address, there's this picture of a three-part dehellenization of Western civilization that began in its most decisive moments in the 1500s, right? And, and as you know, the Germans wanted nothing more as a culture, first, second, and third Reichs, than to be Greeks. They wanted to be Hellenistic. And this was, this was true at the outset of the First Reich, you know, when Nietzsche was cautioning society about the First Reich and then the, the Second Reich when he's going crazy. Um, they wanted to be Greeks and they were nothing close to it. And, and it's really worth a read. And I would just point everyone out there, Parish Orphans Retrogrades, to go back and read the Regensburg Address. Six or seven pages, he goes through the three moments of dehellenization, which from a natural perspective was the beginning of the disintegration of Christendom. And it's really starting with the Protestant Reformation. This is when there was an attack on Aristotelianism, uh, on the, the hylomorphic tradition of Aristotelianism. And no one can be great too much after that. The second moment was what's called um, liberal Protestant theology coming out of Tübingen, where, where Hegel was from, and others. And then the third moment, uh, Ratzinger, Pope Benedict Emeritus XVI, uh, whatever you want to call him, he, he identified as cultural pluralism and relativism, which is ongoing. And it's, it's, it's happening in our day. It was happening in his day in 2006, and now it's happening in our day 16 years later still. But there's this new strain of it called wokeism. My point in raising it all is that um, there's something that Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, these, these Hegelians that were everyone who was anyone in the academy, both these guys were enormous brains and, and uh, lived a rich life of the mind. They all thought, oh, this is the life of the mind, but they were all living after the death of the mind, culturally speaking, <laughs> because they were living in a de-Hellenized world. And so there's this natural element where it's like, once you're living after the, the killing of Aristotle, whatever you do with your hands on a chalkboard, like a painter painting after, you know, the, the death of beautiful fine arts, modern arts, it's going to be, it's going to be for naught. So that's, that's naturally, they're living after Aristotle. And I just think it's, it's hard. You know, you know what that reminds me of? It reminds yeah. me of, you ever read Cormac McCarthy's book, Blood Meridian? No. It's halfway a, it's, through it now. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a horrifying book, but it's fantastic literature. And there's this, uh, there's this villain in it, the judge, Judge Holden. And he's kind of, uh, well, so there, there's this one part, they're in the Southwest going through this just violent odyssey that the book's about. And they end up in like what sounds like basically Chaco Canyon. And there's all the Anasazi ruins built into the cliff sides all around them. These pretty amazing, you know, stone cities. And there were some natives who lived in those as well. And they're kind of coming through the area and you can see like the campfires of the natives in some of these places. So the windows and doorways are kind of glowing and they look around and they see some really crude kind of cave painting type things on the walls. And, uh, 
the judge makes the point to his little group that's there. He says, you know, these natives who live here, they didn't build these things. Um, somebody that they've never heard of, that's basically a mythological figure to them, built these things. And they live in them. And he draws the analogy, he says, that, that kind of has to do with what you were saying earlier. It's like, you know, um, an orphan's relationship to the father is whether you're talking about a society or an individual in real life, or just literally or figuratively is always going to be extremely complicated. It's, you know, like, cause an orphan is not somebody whose father dies when he's 35, right? Somebody whose father dies before he's fully developed into a man. And the relationship can go kind of one of two ways. You know, you can have a situation where the father is idealized because you know, your mother and his siblings and everybody, you know, in your life who knew him only knew him at the peak of his powers, you know, when he was, you know, whatever, 36 years old, I think Nietzsche's father was 40 when he died. Um, and you know, that's all they, they only want to remember the good things about him. And so you only ever hear the good things about him. And, uh, you don't go through that process that is kind of the birthright of, and this is this is the point the judge makes in that passage in Blood Meridian, is that it's the birthright of every son to see his father decline and fail and die. That you need to like be in order to be able to move into his role and take up the mantle, like you know, you have this figure when you're a kid, your father who's just basically a god in your life. And over the course of your life, part of your maturing process is as you grow and you see him start to decline, he's humanized a little bit. And you realize that that is a role you can actually step into that. that is, those are shoes that you actually can fill. Whereas for an orphan, that can be very difficult because you have this idealized image of your father, that the permanent presence there that never changes. And that idealized image um, is not, you know, it, it very often it does not look like something that you can, meet the expectations of, or they, you know, those don't look like shoes that you can actually fill and it can be very crippling. And, um, you know, sometimes it can be crippling in, in a paralytic way, but other times, you know, sort of to, uh, to come to terms with, with these feelings of inadequacy and, and, and rootlessness, uh, people will turn on the memory of the father and sort of demonize it and, and define themselves as against it. And, um, you know, I think that Europe, I mean, in the, you know, as you get up into, uh, as you get up into the age you're talking about, um, you know, they wanted to be Greeks is that they look back at this grand tradition, whether it was the Greeks or even their own earlier history, like the Gothic era of their own history. And they're in a way they're sort, even though they're, they're very technically proficient, even though they're very militarily powerful and all of these things, there's this sense that they have almost like, you know, the, the Europeans in uh, very early uh, or the, the early, very early Middle Ages, like the Dark Ages, looking around at these things that the Romans built and imagining they must have been built by giants or gods or something because they couldn't imagine what race of men could have created all of these things. And yet they have to grow up in the shadow of that. And, and not only the shadow of it, but knowing that whoever these people were, the world got them too. Like they were this big and this grand and this magnificent. And yet even they didn't last. And, you know, you see this, I think, very powerfully, for example, and in it in a manifests in a very dark way with the Aztecs. You know, the Aztecs built Tenochtitlan. It's this glittering, beautiful city, uh, you know, down in um, uh, where Mexico City is today. But a little bit north of there was Teotihuacan, which was 
a city that was bigger than Tenochtitlan, which had a pyramid that was bigger than Tenochtitlan and yet had been destroyed and just devastated and abandoned long before anybody remembered. It was just, you know, they didn't have a story for how it happened, maybe a myth, but it happened a long time ago. And so they have this, this thing just above them that they can always look at as somebody who's, that they see as clearly greater than they were, but who, who failed and was destroyed just like they were. And they live in the shadow of that. And so what do you hold on to, to validate yourself when you're living in a shadow like that? And I think, you know, when you get up into the, the modern age of, of Europe, is we, you know, they were able to uh, latch on to science, you know, materialism, the things that the technical mastery over the environment. Um, these are the things that they could, at the very least, if they felt spiritually inadequate compared to their predecessors or to the Greeks, that they could kind of hold on to to validate themselves. That's good. What do you, what do you, what do you say, Joe? I, I have an, I have a response to your question you asked earlier about um, Nietzsche's critique of. Christian dissimulation in Rosatomon, but we, we, uh, you haven't said anything in a while, Joe. Or what, um, what I'm intently listening. It's also good. I was happy to hear, uh, I'm a big fan of Cormac McCarthy. Uh, I'm about halfway through Blood Meridian and uh, I read No Country for Old Men and The Road. Uh, and I just thinking of fatherhood, it's like, well, <clears throat> toward, while, while people, when, when people start to live, obviously, did, did, you, did you read The Road or No Country? Did you, I figured. Uh, it's like he, he, you have no country for old men, which like ends like with, with uh, the sheriff surrendering. And then you have the road, which ends with the, the, uh, the child kind of being, being given to like a Christ-like figure. At least that, that's, I guess you could interpret it that way. That that's how I've kind of seen it. And, uh, and like just believing in, in an idea of good and, these this happens he writes the book after he has his own son and so in his it, 50s by the way his first his first child and he was in his 50s at that point he was an older man he's yeah. very key to understanding that book and his career in general for sure yeah he was an older man i remember hearing about a, a scene from a hotel room and it, and it, it's it's i don't know it just made me think of how we kind of ha- have these ideas kind of like that dostoevsky had but life and like literally the institution of fatherhood itself, like the form of that thrust itself upon you in, in real life. And then the, the Christian story becomes like pragmatically essential. Like you, you don't like, beside from it just being literally true, as I would say you, it, it, it needs to be true or the whole thing is, is just a wash. It's like, you know, uh, or else the earth is unchained from the sun, you know? And so, yeah, I was just, I was just happy to hear that. Well, uh, the road is, the road is so great because like, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the fact that he had had his son because, you know, McCarthy's all of his books, there's just so horrifying. None of them end well. They all like, you know, a darkness eventually swallows up, you know, everybody in the story. And that was sort of, you know, the mood of all of his work as he was going up. And then, in his fifties, he has his first child and uh, he writes the road and it's about a father and his son. Right. And he uses a very clever device. It's not uh, particularly uncommon, but you know, he, he wants to make a point about living in a meaningless world and creating meaning in that world. Uh, And so he makes it just 
the the you know apotheosis of like media the, the extreme version it's a post-apocalyptic world he doesn't even bother telling you how the world ended it's just mm-hmm. ended everything is gray ash dead the the few humans that are still running around are cannibals and and abusing and exploiting each other and yet you have this father and this son who are making their way through through this world trying to survive and they have these two myths that are keeping them going one is this idea of carrying the fire and they don't mean literal fire. It's something that the father tells his son that like, you know, we have to survive because we're carrying the fire. And, um, you know, like, uh, and then the other one is that they're trying to get to the sea. They don't really know why they don't really have any idea what's at the sea, why it's going to be better, but it's something that orients them and they're going in that direction. And, you know, it's the, 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 the great theme of the book, I think, is something that hit Cormac McCarthy probably very hard after the birth of his own son, is that you can actually live in that world. You can live in a world that is even just gray ash, destroyed, ruined, surrounded by, you know, just, just horror on all sides. Uh, but the, the, a simple thing like the love and the relationship between a father and a son can 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 give that world color even in the most extreme situation there's like you know there's a little bit of like victor frankl in there that kind of idea of man's search for meaning you know he's obviously his post-apocalyptic world is a concentration camp in that case but or or another concentration camp version is i and i and i actually relate these two uh, quite a bit the road and uh the movie life is beautiful have you seen that movie it's a great movie it. yeah so yeah. it's it's about um you know it's, it takes place during the second world war this Jewish father and his son end up in a concentration camp together. And, uh, you know, it's a concentration camp. Like what are you going to do? It's the worst thing, right. And, or at least in our modern parlance, the worst possible place, hell on earth. And he wants to protect the innocence of his son in this environment. And so he tells him a story, you know, that actually this is all a big game and you have to play along, play certain roles. When the guard says, go do this, you have to be like, yes, sir. And that's part of the game. And whoever plays it best at the end is going to win a tank or something like that, you know? And he does this. And obviously like the, the, the things he has to do to keep this going, to keep this idea going, the illusion going, uh, become more and more elaborate and ridiculous as the movie goes on. Um, but it's this idea that, uh, you know, you have to, you have to be able to orient yourself because the thing is like, we all live in that world, whether we want to think of it that way or not, we all live in that post-apocalyptic concentration camp world in the simple sense that, uh, you know, everybody that you know and love is, is going to be taken from you one day. Um, all of the things that you think are significant and important in your day-to-day life, all of those things are going to be forgotten and rendered meaningless someday. Uh, and if you live in like a full-on materialist, you know, modern world, then eventually the sun's going to blow up and the solar system's going to go away and the universe is going to break down into like a gaseous, you know, uniform nothingness. Happy Easter, by the way. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, and that's, yeah, that's, and that's what's waiting for you if you want to accept the materialist version of the world. Um, and, you know, the, and so, but it's, but it's, a, it's, I think even for a Christian, it's very valuable to say, if that, let's say we're in that world, like, wh- wh- how do you live in that world even? And, um, you know, and I think again, the conclusion that McCarthy came to because of his personal experiences in that book is that you don't have to, you don't have to look far, just look into the face of your son and you'll find whatever it is that you think was taken from, you know, your civilization or taken from the world, taken from you, um, 
you know, and, and that's something that is rediscoverable in even in our modern age in our hyper rational materialistic age, you know, where everything seems to have been stripped of, 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 of meaning and magic. If you can just bring yourself back and look at your son in the face or look at your, your family or, or develop some kind of love for your hometown or the people around you, then you can actually find all of those things that you think were taken, were taken from you. You see, when I was when I was an undergrad and really struggling with the, the, the post-apocalyptic, post-conciliar fallout from Vatican II, and I didn't even know it, you know, <laughs> the Catholic that had been raised in Catholic schools, never believing a word of it, even in grade school, uh, educated in Catholic schools, Jesuit universities, Catholic universities, just my entire life, aside from a couple years, all Catholic educated and not believing a whit of it. That, I think that's why connected so much with Nietzsche and Dostoevsky is the, the kind of crass materialistic survivalism, the crass materialistic uh, post-apocalyptic uh, swan song that informs Nietzsche's philosophy. And Dostoevsky's like, like you're kind of both insinuating, just a stone's throw away from it, you know, just a, a, a couple, couple degrees on that that wheel and he wound up you know this side of christianity once again in in his of course russian orthodox faith but i connected with it so much then because that was before like my reversion i remember i went to undergrad in here in the south um even though i'm a native californian i've done lots of my college here in the south and i was always in, in literature class i was also in uh a lot of geology classes with my older brother and there were some creationist fundamentalist Protestants, and we'd be talking about either the contents of our geology class, or it's like the you know the universe is thirteen point seven billion years old, or whatever. How 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 are you guys creationists? You're a, you're a geology major, or with some of the creationists in my literature classes, I'd be like, we just read Brothers Karamazov, like this is the most amazing novel ever. And it's so amazing because it actually wrestles with the notion, Ivan's notion, that without God, everything is permissible. And even though, you know, Dostoevsky wound up on the North Shore of lifelong agnosticism, he at least dignifies the question by passing through it, not around it. And, and that's what oh, yeah. makes it so beautiful. I mean, that's why I liked it so much then. And that's why I still love, I love both of those thinkers now. But I was so irritated at the creationist fundamentalist Protestants who I, I wrote off back then because I was just some agnostic. Uh, like they, they felt so above it. They're like, well, I mean, hey, you know, we, we have our ticket back into Eden. We, you know, Jesus died. And of course, notwithstanding their, their um, differing conception of justification. Now I kind of look back on it and I feel like, but they were, they were right. All of the, Every drop of the romanticism that one tries to wring out of the fruit of uh, hopelessness and desperation that, that is beautiful, the suffering that, that um, so much of Nietzsche and Dostoevsky's life and writings were, were wrought of is at the same time dignified by Christianity, but it, at the same time also trivialized. You know, I mean, like, it's almost like, wow, everyone... Everyone I know and love and everything, this used to give me panic attacks at night. I'd wake up crying in my 20s. Everyone I know and love is going to just, you know, food for worms. 
is going to be ashes someday. We'll be swallowed up like a Cormac McCarthy novel. And, and death has the last laugh, as Wit says in The Thin Red Line. And I would just get panic attacks. And this even continued a little bit after my first daughter was born when the Holy Spirit got really active in my life there, there in Italy. I was studying Thomas and, and Aristotle at a pontifical school in Italy, and I still didn't have the fullness of the faith. <clears throat> so I, there, there's that element of it where it's like, yeah, the suffering's cool and the, the, the struggle, the journey is the real destination and all of that. But now I, I see, now that it's like, man, like every Eucharistic miracle, every, every relic that's been verified has the same blood type of Jesus's AB positive, right? These Eucharistic miracles confound every scientist. Now that I'm like, there's all this evidence, the great conspiracy of our lives is that it was all true. It actually turns out we're not going to lose everyone that we ever loved, right? I mean, we even get our bodies back after the universal judgment. And so I look at a movie like Life is Beautiful. My, my wife loves that movie. I, I always liked it. As with all due respect, every judge in the world knows when a lawyer says that some, something disrespectful is coming. It's a very Jewish way of looking at the world. Nietzsche had a very... Jewish way of looking at the world. And he, he was dealing with this question of dissimulation, you know, the, the kind of the weaker position making itself the stronger by, by turning a, an is into an ought. And it's a big, big theme in his philosophy. And, um, and yet I'd say, but this is the brute reality. The way all of those folks out there since the, the you know, materialism has preponderated the last 500 years would say about Christians it's a brute fact that the world doesn't just end and death doesn't just have the last laugh. And, you know, which I believed all throughout my twenties. And um, so it's, it's the ultimate response to Nietzsche, since Joe brought this up at the very beginning of this talk, uh, he has this critique that, you know, Christianity does bring something to the world that's new besides the sword. Islam just brings the sword, right? Uh, Nietzsche would say, it's just this resentment, this uh, dissimulation, this love for the victim and victimhood mongering and mining and all that. Um, and of course, uh, Daryl, you gave uh, a, an excellent explication of why it is actually noble that Christianity tells stories, tells narratives, true myths and, and false ones besides from the perspective of victims. And I, I, I couldn't do a better job than what you did there, but Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who reconverted communist Bella Dodd, uh, got her to confess all of her sins. You know, her sins included putting uh, 1,100 Soviet Marxists into the priesthood as plants. Well, well Archbishop Fulton Sheen got her to re reconvert. He says this, he put it this way. Here's what's uh, unique about Christianity vis-a-vis -vis victims and vis-a-vis uh, -vis human weakness. All the other religions in the history of the world, I'm, I'm thinking of life as beautiful still as I say this, all the other religions in the history of the world, including Judaism, are an attempt of man down here to come up to God here. And, and Fulton Sheen goes through Buddhism, right? The whatever, fourfold way, seven, seven this, the Hinduism, uh, all of the, the polytheisms from the primordial ones to the, well, they're all pretty primordial, but same thing with Islam, same thing with Judaism. Whereas Christianity to, to add one more fold of nuance to uh, what you said, Daryl, 
Christianity is the one religion, has to be the one true religion, because it actually deals with human weakness, human victimhood in a real way, just a true way. We can't make it up to God. So God had to become incarnate and come down to us. And Fulton Sheen gives this beautiful metaphor of uh, the plants can't go up to the sun to get to transact photosynthesis. The light has to come down to them and catch the leaves. God had to come down to us. He had to take on our form. And fun, so, I mean, I would say that my response, or somehow, somehow this whole show has become enveloped by my response to Nietzsche about Christianity, and, and <laughs> neither of you guys are, are uh, you know, give, giving voice to Nietzsche as if he's right. But naturally, I would say, well, look, both of these geniuses, massive intellects of the 19th century, G, uh, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, on a natural level, they were orphaned young, but they, they never had an intellectual father insofar as they, they have these great big minds. And yet the logos had been covered up by Europe, by all of humanity for already 300 years by their day, right? I mean, the, the logos, the Greek logos that everyone wants to recover really with Aristotle had been covered up. The whole point, the invention of the university was to pass on to gifted students, a gifted few, Christian Aristotelianism. That's the point. And that had been gone since around the time of the Protestant Reformation. So there's nothing there. It's an empty set. That's naturally. That's my response. It's like great big brains. Nietzsche just studied a little bit of philosophy, mainly philology. Uh, Dostoevsky had had his head filled with Hegelianism, and it's all it's all complex mush, like Niles Crane says about waltzing. This is this is boring yet difficult. <laughs> you know, this is false yet difficult Hegelianism. So they had no intellectual parentage there, though they had these great big brains and tons of psychological insight, which is why we spend most of our time when we talk of Nietzsche or Dostoevsky, IQ 180s or whatever, basically just psychologists, because they hadn't studied the right stuff. So that's my natural critique. And then the supernatural critique is just, especially to Nietzsche, Dostoevsky got it in the end. It's that there's this way of dignifying the Christian view of the victim. It's not the, the, the Jewish way that, uh, of dignifying the victim that we get in life is beautiful at all. That's just game theory, right? I mean, the dad literally games his son into squeezing every last drop out of natural. It's natural religion is what the Freemasons want us to, to have. So that's, that's all Jewish. That's all the old mode. Even though the Jews were right about monotheism, they shared that with the polytheists who have virtually no elements of truth in their faith. The truth is, because of the incarnation, which was made necessary at the fall of Adam and Eve, you had to have a redeemer. You had, that was the moment when it was locked in, that there had to be this incarnation where the sun rays come down to the plant leaves. It was done. It had to happen at some point then. It got locked in. Um, because that's fundamental to human nature and because human nature had been altered so fundamentally by sin, which we weren't created for. That's the point at which you'd say, oh, yeah, God took on this undignified, uh, lowlier human form out of pure love, pure power being restrained. So now all of a sudden you get to... Uh, a mode of talking about power that Nietzsche actually could have appreciated if, if, if he could have had a more Aristotomist view of the world, you know, which just simply wasn't being imparted in Northern Europe at that point. But it's like, oh, what's more dope than power? All the world is will to power and nothing besides, right? No, wrong. At the very least, there's also this doper thing than power. 
restrained power, you know, like, uh, like the one prison guard is trying to impart to the other one in Schindler's List. Uh, another very Jewish movie is right. Like what's even doper than power restrained power. That's God becoming man and humbling himself. So I think that's the ultimate way in addition to your, your excellent explication of this on your Easter show, Daryl, given that it's the sixth day of Easter. Now, I think that Fulton Sheen fold helps to respond to would be criticizers of Christianity by saying, well, you know, the left now wokeism is just secularized, weaponized, post-Christian Christianity, right? This obsession with victims is like, nah, no, that's not quite right. Literally God blunted, muted his own power, took on this undignified form at the incarnation out of love for us. It unites all of these themes. Well, and that reversal of direction is why, like of, of grace, right? Is why humility is so central to Christianity. And obviously like, you know, today's world, humility is not a very popular concept. Um, but you know, it's like the idea of, in that in my Nietzsche Dostoevsky episode, I tell the story of uh, George Price, the scientist who um, you know, he worked on the question of human altruism and uh, kind of, you know, famous work, did a lot of evolutionary psychology work. And, um, you know, he had always been a militant atheist. And then at a certain point in his life, as he is uh, doing his work, basically, like he, he did a lot of work on like, uh, um, with, with, uh, oh gosh, who was the guy you worked with? Um, it's, it's, I'm, I'm losing it now, but basically he came up with like an equation that he believed, uh, explained the mystery of human altruism. How is it that we could, you know, that evolution would have allowed us to do things that seem not in keeping with our own self-interest, you know, just in, in order to do other people. And he came up with a mathematical equation that he thought explained that. Well, at a certain point, he started to feel a tremendous amount of guilt for having drained the meaning of of altruism and human kindness out of out of it by mathematizing it right and, and making it this this object of rational understanding and he said that he had this and this was actually he didn't tell other people this uh until later this was in his like journals that he had this religious experience and he became very very religious and he actually you know to the point where he believed that god was talking to him and telling him he had to go do things and so what he decided he was going to do was maybe out of penance, but, but, you know, probably just, you know, because he couldn't, he couldn't accept that uh, the, the conclusions that his own work had come to about altruism and kindness, just being this mechanical process, he decided that he was going to go out and essentially disprove it himself in his own life. And so he was living in London at the time the 1970s. And uh, he just starts going out and giving away everything he has. He gives away the shoes off his feet, the coat off his back in the middle of winter. He's letting all the homeless drunks just come in and out of his apartment. And he sleeps with them. They eat all his food, just completely open, right? Nothing just denied nobody anything, eventually loses his apartment, ends up on the street with the rest of the homeless people in the same state they're in, a horrible state, you know, um, not just filthy, but through long experience uh, like this, starting to, you know, lose his marbles a little bit. And everybody that knew him, I mean, he had a lot of people that knew him, scientists, but uh, other people, and they all thought that he just lost his mind, of course, right? But he's out there really trying to prove that, uh, you know, that, 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 that just, just unmotivated, non-mechanical human altruism is something that's still possible in the world or that selfless or non-self-interested action at least is, um, still possible in the world. And he gets to a certain point where 
um, you know, he gets an apartment again and uh, he sort of does the final act of, of this whole quest he's been on. He stands in front of his bathroom mirror with a pair of nail scissors and he pokes it into his neck and cuts his carotid artery and he dies on his bathroom floor. And now you look at that and you say, well, this was a guy who clearly was living his life in a way that was the most humble way imaginable, right? And it, to the point that it destroyed him, like the most humble way imaginable, giving away everything, let, you know, just letting people do whatever they wanted. And to the point, just, but then when you actually look a little bit, just barely beneath the surface, you realize that there was no humility involved there at all, that this was a life that was driven by tremendous pride, you know, to imagine that it was your job somehow to go out there and disprove, you know, the, the nature of kindness and altruism and you or whatever it is that you're going to go just sack martyr yourself, like on this altar to prove this, that that's on you. You know, that's the person who is trying to climb the ladder and go up to God himself rather than allowing God to come down to him. And, right. you know, that's one, this is the thing that, that Dostoevsky was so great about in the second half of his career. And that Nietzsche never came around to, is being able to see how so many of the things that we think of as being our virtues are really a cover for, for vices, cover for pride, a cover for, you know, like even, even, um, you know, things we call selflessness are very often just covers for a, a deep masochism that we have. And there's a lot of things like that. And Dostoevsky in the second half of his career really came around to that. And Nietzsche, you know, he, um, he, he refused to look at himself in the mirror like that, I think. That's interesting. Was that called the price equation? I was. Yeah. Really this yeah. It's a fascinating story. I mean, it's a very, very sad story because, you know, because, because he's, I, I look at him kind of like Nietzsche, right? Like he was somebody who, you know, like Nietzsche was this guy who is coming up with this philosophy of the ubermensch and the will to power and all that and Nietzsche in his personal life was this sickly you know poor health um terrible luck with women when he could even bring himself to talk to them never had a woman never had a child or anything like that um all of you know if you read his books especially the later you go you think that like Beowulf had stopped for a minute or Siegfried had stopped for a second to write about Hegel or something right but Nietzsche was the exact opposite of that. I mean, he was what we call like a basement dwelling incel essentially today. Brilliant one, but that's kind of what he was. And yet he has this philosophy that says the weak and the, and the botched should perish and that we should help them along to it. And that, you know, victory is the only real medicine, you know, for the human soul and so forth. And yet he is who he is. And he has to sort of square those two things. Like how is like, this is what I believe to be true. Here's what my own life looks like. And so Price, you know, in kind of a different way, George Price, he come up with this equation. He's a very rational guy and uh, very, you know, into his like mathematical work to the point that when he felt like he had come up with this equation that proved the mechanical nature of human altruism, you know, that he had to accept it, that he had to say, well, this is true. I've proven it mathematically. Therefore, it's true. And yet, like, you know, I feel like I love my daughters. I feel like when I get her a birthday present, it's just because I want her to be happy. Uh, but this is telling me that that's all fake. And, you know, both of those guys, Nietzsche and, and Price, kind of both decided that, like, you know what, uh, we're not, we're, we're going to fight this with every fiber in our being, this dichotomy between what we see in our lives 
and what we kind of know to be true on some rational level, we're just going to refuse to accept it and accelerate into it wherever it takes us. And it took Price to suicide and it took Nietzsche to madness. And again, Dostoevsky, you know, is, is it? It's such an interesting person to place in counterpoint to Nietzsche because he was the one who got up to that precipice and not out of cowardice, not at all, but out of revelation, really, like, you know, turned back and went back to his home. You know, he was, you know, when Nietzsche at a similar point in his life, obviously he, he lived a little bit later, but at the same age and the same trajectory point in the trajectory of their lives, when Nietzsche is just condemning all of his old early influences and attacking Germans in Germany and talking about how wretched they are and, um, you know, all just really turning on everything that had and tearing apart everything that had contributed to making him who he was in a way. Um, Dostoevsky, uh, you know, he, he went back, he became a Russian patriot. He recommitted himself to his Orthodox Christianity. He um, was very involved in uh, sort of lo- uh, local and national um, Russian charity work. He was like the chairman of the uh, of the board of the All Slavic uh, like uh, Gener- Generosity Society or something like that. And he really like went back home to his father in a sense, you know, and uh, just in a in a broader sense, wh- whether it was like the land of his father and the god of his father, obviously as well. And um, it was that Nietzsche, uh, or rather Dostoevsky, um, was able to swallow his pride to do that. And Nietzsche and George Price, I think, were two people who could not swallow their pride. I mean, because you say, like, what would it have looked like for Nietzsche to not have not gone mad or for George Price to have not driven himself off a cliff so that he's, you know, dying on his bathroom floor by suicide? And what it would have taken would, you know, have been like Nietzsche, you know, your health is um, not great. It's not easy for you to, uh, to, to work the way you are. You're miserable. You don't have any friends. You're, you know, you're just living a miserable life. And the way you can change all that is by saying, you know what, I'm uh, maybe I'm going to move to a to a small town in Germany, and I'm going to teach at the local university there. I'm not going to be the, you know, the greatest professor of X, Y, and Z in the history of Europe or anything. I'm going to go teach some students to be better people than they might have been before and to understand the world in a more profound way. I'm going to have a family and I'm going to live a normal life. And the same with George Price, you know, go, go get a job like you don't because he, you know, he started his career working on the Manhattan Project, right, the very beginning of his career and um, got his PhD for the work he did on the Manhattan Project. And then, you know, what's going to measure up to for, for a young scientist in his whole life to like working on the Manhattan Project, you know, and, and so what it would have taken for him to avoid the cliff that he went off of might have been, you know, go teach chemistry at a community college live a, live a comfortable, normal life. Maybe you get back on your feet after a while. And like, now you can start branching out and pushing things further again, but you have to humble, you have to be willing to humble yourself. And, uh, it's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. You know, there's a reason that the Bible talks so much about it. Cause it really is a tough one. Yeah. I just want to, in closing, I just would point out with regard to George price, it's a perfect instantiation of the principle I was talking about earlier. Without Aristotelianism, you get into this crude, uh, guys like George Price get into this crude Cartesianism where it's like, you know, uh, Jerry strikes Tom, Tom's body lies down and the soul gets up and floats out. The, The crude dualism that these corpuscularians believed in the mechanical philosophy that he thought that he, he disproven, um, you know, the truth of, real Christian caritas or something like that. 
I'm gathering. Uh, and also probably the freedom of the will to elect such actions just by proving that our telos and our ergon, you know, our final cause and our formal cause impel us to do such things. That's <laughs> yeah. not right at all. Yeah. yeah. See, that's, that's the, that's the whole truth, Daryl of Aristotelianism, namely hylomorphism, you know, the form goes in the matter is that, um, that those two principles, it's a both and, those two principles are not antithetical. The idea that even our soul is probably something like our DNA or something like that. Uh, an Aristotelian professor of mine once said that, a Thomas Aristotelian professor said that. Form is in matter. So it literally informs matter with its formal cause. Uh, form, uh, forma da essay, form gives essay. So even that principle that he's struggling with, at first he thinks he's disproven, all of caritas, like you said, there's no intellectual hubris in that, right? Disproving this most fundamental aspect of the human will, love, and then reversing it and thinking he, he by himself can prove it. It's like, dude, if you just grew up in an age before we killed Aristotle, <laughs> you'd realize that we are, that it's a both and. We are literally wired in love. We are soft wired, made in love. We're made to do this. Our bodies impel us to do this like Aquinas teaches, every single appetite that we have, <laughs> rightly or is good. So, of course, our wills impel us to love and our bodies do the work of our wills. So it just, it, everything I, it comes down to for me, like, wow, the big brains in our society for the last 500 years live in a day when, as Nietzsche always announced, the sun has fallen. The Aristotelian sun has indeed fallen, except at a few places where you can go and learn um, the, the true version of form and matter, not the Cartesian version. But, but I mean, this has gone way longer than we normally go just because it's been so damned enjoyable. Uh, jo Joe and Daryl, thank you guys for joining today. Any, any parting shots? Joe, I haven't heard your voice in a bit. No, I, I appreciate y'all both doing it. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. We should do it again sometime. I would I'd love, love to. to. I'd love yeah. to. This is a longer format than I've gone. And it's not even like, normally it's just sort of, you know, I, I like long format shows. I've, I've gone on a few, you know, Matt, Matt Fred's show is longer format. I think I was on there for three hours. I'm like, this is fun. I, I don't think I could do it three times a week, but um, yeah, just naturally, I wasn't even checking the time. We, we pulled more time out of the vault because it was just listening to Daryl and make a, a, a point listening to, to Joe. I, I like this format. Actually, if I went to one a week, I would, I would do two to three hours. How often is your how how long is your average show on Martyr Made, Daryl? Two on my main feed. Um, I would say an average one's probably four to five hours, but I've got one that was eight, and maybe a couple Seriously? that are two and a half or three. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Eight. <laughs> one episode was actually like eleven hours, but I I broke it up into two and just sort of made it. Sometimes I start working on an episode and I have like the structure of that part of the story that I want to tell. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. I know exactly where it fits in the overall structure. So it has to be this way. Yeah. But as I start outlining it and putting together, and especially when I start finally talking and, and recording the podcast, I'll get to the point where I'm 25% of the way through the material I need to cover. And it's been four or five hours. So, yeah, it's always a challenge. Do you have like an IV drip of saline fluids and uh <laughs> Or do you just eat on set? I, I guess I, I've been. Um, yeah. I mean, if no, if I need to, uh, you know, take a break for a glass of water, go to the bathroom, I'll just hit pause and then come back and pick it back up. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're audio only. So for the yeah. most part. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. 
yeah not constricted yeah. yeah audio only is fun i've done a few yeah, i have those. a i have a face for radio so i do audio only <laughs> no, <it's> a, <laughs> all adonis is all of us uh well they, so daryl where can you be found joe where you where can you be found uh shout shout out anything you'd, you'd like um i'd really like my my people the parish orphans and retrogrades who listen to this program to be able to connect with your podcast because you do really good stuff Thanks. Um, yeah. So just um, you can find my podcast on iTunes or Spotify or whatever you use. It's called Martyr Made, um, M-A-R-T-Y-R-M-A-D-E. Uh, and if you are interested in some of the stuff we were talking about in this episode, um, the most recent or maybe two episodes ago that I put out on the main feed is called The Underground Spirit. And it's about Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and their interplay. That's that's good stuff. How, how about you, Joe? And and Daryl's a, a big deal. He just went on Tucker's uh, uh, stream or podcast. It, it, you know, you're a big deal. So that's really cool stuff. How about how about you, Joe? Yeah, just on Twitter at here to help one eight eight, and uh, I write for one Peter five here and there. So that's about all I got. Daryl, I'd like to talk to you sometime about your. You know, I have this book, The Case for Patriarchy. We we should do, we could get into a long a long talk on, on patriarchy and a longer, longer format. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on uh, my arguments. I want to send you a book. All right. Yeah. Great. Patriarchy. Sounds good. Well, God bless you both. Happy Easter to you both. And um, thanks for spending the time today. And it's, it's been really enjoyable. Different. Yeah, different. for sure. Thanks very much guys. God Thank bless you, Daryl. Thank you, Tim. Deus Volt. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.